Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, Pylon Week continues with Vanessa Briscoe, the incredible vocalist of Pylon, one of my favorite vocalists of all time. More on that in one second. But first... If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. And that is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. And he will get the message to me. Tristan also runs a Facebook page and an Instagram page for this podcast. Both of those can be found at Turned Out of Punk on their respective platforms. If you're looking for me on social media, I am on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you're looking for a way to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that, you know, that we do this podcast here and they should check it out because we will have, you know, people from the Sopranos on people from pylon on people from no effects on, you know, we, we, we go all over the place with this thing. Uh, you can also support this show by subscribing to it and writing a review on your listening platform of choice. And furthermore, if you want to go the extra mile and support this podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash turn out a punk and sign up for the Patreon and check out the stuff we do over there. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of you that do. I really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind loving support of my fine friends over there at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, we just don't want you to have to do it out of your own pocket to put this thing on each and every week. So they give me a little bit of money to help me cover the costs. And I got to say thank you very much to them for uh, continuing to do that and continuing to support this podcast. Because what we do here, it's not, it's not massive work. It's not big work, but it's the Lord's work. The Lord being the Lords of Punk. Who would be the Lord of Punk? Uh... Penelope Spheris? Yeah, that, that, that works for me. Penelope Spheris. Okay. Anyway, uh, thank you very much to Vans for all of that. On to today's show. Today on the show, Tristan Abraham did not book this guest. My buddy, Brady Brock, over there at New West, who is uh, an incredible, just an incredible fan of music. He is really someone that, you know, works in the music industry, and you can tell just, just loves all this stuff. So he told me months and months ago that he was working on this pylon box set and uh, mentioned that, there, you know, we should try and do something for the podcast for it. I immediately said, of course, absolutely, we got to do something for the podcast with this band because, as I mentioned last week on Michael, or last episode, I should say, on Michael's one, pylon's a band that I kind of feel like, you know, I didn't discover or anything, but I, I kind of came to them on my own, you know, like I found their records used in a record store, thought they looked interesting, brought them home, fell in love with them and, and just, you know, kind of went from there. I, I wasn't able to find very much information on them at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I, I felt like they were, you know, kind of my own band because none of my friends knew about them and it was, it was my own thing. And then fast forward a few years and DFA did a reissue and, at the time, I remember being kind of taken aback that here's this band that I beloved, that I had developed my own theories on where they sat in the musical landscape. And here's DFA Records at the time, a super trendy dance punk label coming in and putting out their records. And I really felt like, I don't know, like, like my band was being taken from me and given to the rest of the world. And now, of course... I realized that, you know, that was an amazing thing to happen because it really did give Pylon a chance to kind of be recast in a new light and exposed to, to, you know, a whole new audience. And here they are, 
you know, 10 years, 10 plus years on, uh, on with this brand new box set coming out on new West records. And they're going to be exposed again and hopefully given their proper place in, in sort of the musical history as being a key, key band in leading to everything that kind of happened in the wake of punk rock. They are a band. I don't want to see. I'm kind of dancing around it because you're going to hear a lot of this conversation happen with Vanessa in a second, but I just, yeah, I really love this band and doing these two episodes and kind of going back and re-listening to Pylon again. Oh man, this is, this is one of the best bands ever. I love this band so much. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to ramble on. This is a really fun conversation with someone who is a massive influence on me vocally and, and, you know, far more important people than myself too. And she is just so humble. Oh, it's such a fun one. Okay. Well, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Everyone sit back, relax, and enjoy Vanessa Briscoe on Turned Out a Punk. Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, I'm really excited to get to talk to you and find out more about what you think about punk rock. Well, I'm excited to find out more importantly what you think about punk rock because as I was just you know, alluding to off air, you're a massive influence on myself and not just myself, like a whole, well, tons and tons of people, but we will get to all that in a minute. But first we got to start this off the way they all start off, which is Vanessa, how did you get into punk rock? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Well, the first time I came across punk rock, I, I suppose is uh, listening to the Ramones. And I think that the year 1976 to 77 were kind of a dividing point in music. Mm -hmm. um, before that, right before that, 74, 75, I was listening to things like Heart and Fleetwood Mac and Top 40 Radio. And also I had a real sweet tooth for prog rock um, because of my first husband, Jimmy Ellison. Um, he was later the bass player for the Side Effects. Yes, absolutely. Rest in peace. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, around about 76, 77, um, we, I started hearing this music. Uh, I'd been a fan of uh, David Bowie and of Roxy music prior to that, which is kind of, you know, funnels into punk rock in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I heard the Ramones, and the Ramones were so immediate and direct. Um and um, they had stripped it down to the essentials um, that uh, it really made a huge impact on me. Um, then I think, uh, <clears throat> I'm trying to remember, I was in college sometime in 78. I didn't go to see the show, but some of my friends from art school or the art department at UGA um, <clears throat> went to Atlanta to see, um, you know, uh, the the Sex Pistols in Atlanta, and it was their first U.S. Uh, show. For some reason, I think the first one had gotten canceled. I can't even remember why now. And, uh, you know, I remember the next day hanging out with one of my friends, Sean Bourne, uh, who later did the uh, screen prints for the B-52's first single, um, telling me, uh, you know, he'd gone to Atlanta you know, the night before and seen it. And he was telling me about safety pins and cheeks and all this type of thing. And I was like, what? Oh, that <laughs> sounds so gross. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, I didn't really 
experienced the Ramones until I think it was uh, January, February of 1979. They played uh, in Atlanta. <clears throat> so there you are. I was right in front with my girlfriend, Rhonda Nell Fleming. Uh, we were both painting majors at EGA, and uh, we sat through, I mean, we stood through <clears throat> some bands that had nothing to do with the Ramones. <laughs> Why 38 Special was opening, <laughs> I have no idea, but they were. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the audience uh, area behind us at the Agora Ballroom, and, uh, the Agora Ballroom in Atlanta was empty, and then they came on, and all of a sudden, this big crush, you know, rushed against us uh, in front of the stage, and uh, we wouldn't give up our spot. I had women trying to crawl over my back. Somehow, I ended up in front of Joey Ramone, and he gave me one of his guitar picks, and <clears throat> it was a great show, but, you know, we could have been killed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and then afterwards, we were like, well, let's go meet them. And so, you know, we were kind of brave souls. We walked around to the back of the Agora uh, with Jimmy and uh, knocked on the backstage door. And we said, can we meet the Ramones? And uh, there was a guy standing there, kind of looked at us kind of like uh, suspiciously. And uh, he said, oh, yeah. And uh, somebody from the band said, yeah, let them come on in. So we went backstage and met the Ramones. And... Uh, I was asking them to sign my T-shirt, and uh, it was really funny because one of them drew a circle around my breast. I was a little embarrassed by that. But, you know, they didn't do anything weird or anything. There was no weirdness going on. And uh, so, you know, uh, the year leading up to that, we'd had our own party band in Athens called the B-52s, and uh, they weren't punk rock. Um, they were just new music at that time. Um, we were calling things that weren't punk rock, just new music. And uh, they just took off into the stratosphere. And that's about the time. And, you know, 79, they were leaving our town behind. Um, shortly afterward, I was invited to audition for uh, Pylon. But, you know, the Ramones weren't really in my head about how I reacted to what they were doing. But that was my first exposure. Going back to, you know, before you were kind of, you know, in seeing the Ramones and, and getting into punk rock stuff, like where were you kind of discovering, you know, the other stuff you were getting into, like Heart and, and bands like that? Was it through the radio or through magazines or? Well, you know, I, I heard uh, Heart, uh, you know, owned the radio and then I saw their album and I just loved the fact there were two two women in this band you know making such great music one was the singer who had such a range and the other was really a great guitarist and you know when they played at UGA I think sometime in 78 I did go and see them and then you know there were a bunch of us hanging around kind of outside and their tour bus was there and uh i think it was uh oh it was uh ann wilson mm -hmm. she came out i don't know if she was plastered or what but um um she saw me and uh i was wearing like this uh just a sport shirt and a striped skirt and i didn't look like you know these rockers around me and she walked over like she was going to talk to me and some guy from, uh, you know, I guess a minder or 
stage person or something and saw her like actually wandering over to talk to somebody and he picked her up threw her over his shoulder and put her on the um, bus <laughs> <laughs> so i almost met, met ann wilson <laughs> we almost said hello but you know i, I really like what they were doing at the time but you know their show was uh um you know when I, when i saw what was going on with the new music that was happening uh it was like all of a sudden it just became something that was old it was like uh more traditional like uh and i love jimmy hendrix he was an early love of mine you know more like standard rock but this new thing that was coming along it was ours and uh we we really enjoyed it were the B-52s kind of the first local band that you saw that was doing new music or punk rock? Um, yeah, you know, before that in Athens, you know, I have to realize where we are, uh, proximity, you know, to Atlanta and Macon and all of that. Yeah. I kind of miss, you know, Southern rock, but there were still bands coming out of Macon, you know, to play uh, in, um, you know, the UGA Memorial. This um, guy was dressing a long white Jewish robe and he was dragging a cross, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. It was, you know, it was interesting. Uh, but we also had the R&B thing uh, coming from toward Atlanta. I remember seeing uh, Cornelia's brother and sister Rose, and that was really good. Um, and so I, I always enjoyed, you know, the funk that was happening. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really get into disco. Uh, disco was real big in our area for a little while, um, like it was everywhere. But uh, it couldn't really hold your attention. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, absolutely. So, what about like uh, bands for like punk bands and stuff that were happening? Uh, like, at, were there any punk bands happening at that time in Atlanta? Like, would you see any of those bands? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the fans. The fans yeah. were great, and uh, they they played at Atlanta, and they also came to Athens. And um, um, Michael and I were in a class uh, uh, that was taught by Robert Croker. He was a professor. It was like his, he knew it was going to be his last year at UGA, so he just threw it all in with the students, and he was doing all these things. Like he made his paintings at that time by chance, by rolling dice or whatever. <laughs> And the first time I saw the fans, uh, he they were playing at um, the gallery at the University of Georgia, and uh, he was somehow directing them by holding up um, cards, you know, like from a regular card deck. You know, he'd shuffle yeah. them and pick up one, and they would change according to that. And I remember seeing them, and it was the first time I saw, you know, a band that was wearing, um, you know, skinny ties and. Um, you know, there was just a real change in look and those guys and then some of the art students that I went to school with, um, Michael was included in that group. You know, uh, I, I guess it was maybe uh, coming from uh, German punk or English punk or whatever. But, uh, you know, about 77, 78, you were seeing uh, guys show up. Uh, I remember Michael, after I made friends with him, he showed me a jam album he had and I hadn't heard it, and I looked at the lyrics, and I was like, I don't really like these lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it was about them, I mean, but, it, I mean, who am I, you know? 
Fermat to like uh, be such a critic because uh, you know really I I guess I should have been learning or something but uh, you know we were all when you're young you're kind of full of yourself a little bit you know how that is yeah well also it seems like you're pretty versed in in rock music by this point so you've got your tastes I guess right and you're just like yeah it's not for you <clears throat> yeah yeah I, I well you know but I've I've been writing poetries. Um, since I was maybe eight or nine years old and been writing. I mean, that's my dirty little secret. I've never published or put anything out. And really, my mother in high school did me a big favor because she burned all of that stuff. And uh, so <laughs> I don't have to go back and look at, you know, like some teenage girl writing about, you know, what she thinks about flies buzzing around a dead butterfly or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> She did me a huge favor. At the time, it broke my heart. But in retrospect, it was a great thing she did because uh, I don't have all that uh, past stuff like that burdening me, you know, with thinking I have to keep it. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and where did you kind of go um, kind of from from that Ramon show? Like, were there other bands that were kind of coming through on, on sort of like a national touring circuit at that time? Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, um I saw Blondie open for the Kinks, <clears throat> of course. What a bill. And, uh, Holy. And that was a bill. I'm trying to think of who the metal band was, and that was not a really odd bill. <laughs> and, you know, I actually got to meet Clem Burke either last year or year before last. He came and um, played with some friends of mine here in Athens. Uh, Dressy Bessie had played, and then there was another band. I'm forgetting what they're called, but <clears throat> they were really good. They had a... Eddie Munoz and uh, several other people in there, you know, like from the Clemsals or whatever. Oh, wow, yeah. And, uh, and I talked to him. He'd never been to Athens before. Never, ever, you know. But I guess a big band like Blondie, there's probably uh, <clears throat> something that says that if you play a big city or whatever, a festival, you can't play within so many miles. And yeah, Radius we Clause, yeah. Yeah, probably something like that. But I don't know. I didn't ask him. I was just guessing. And he was really, really nice. You know, he walked all over town by himself. I think people just kind of left him alone or whatever. But I asked him about that show. And uh, uh, he remembered, you know, that they really hadn't had much of a sound check. And I got the feeling that maybe the other bands were that nice to them. And uh, anyway, Clint Burke is one of my favorite drummers of all time. He's in my top 10. Oh, absolutely. One of the, so, one of the all time greats. <laughs> yeah, he really, really is. And he's a nice guy too. <clears throat> so was the, uh, I guess the fans would have been the first kind of local-ish punk band, like, you know, obviously not local being from Atlanta, but that had a record out, right? Yeah, yeah. And they were uh, cl followed closely by the Brains. Uh, he ended up with the major record deal, I guess, maybe after we came in to being, you know, on Mercury with Money Changes Everything, which is such a great song. I think Cindy Lauper did it, too. She does, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, let's see, there was another band called The Swimming Pool Cues, and uh, they, they were really good. They were awesome in D.B., and then there was a band called The Restraints who were sort of dangerous. We never played with them, but um, they um, I think they had problems, uh, some sort of problems or whatever, and they'd show up and people would kind of like freak out a little bit because they were 
little bit on the dangerous side um, for whatever reason. Um, but they were always, I'm sorry, they were always nice to me. But, you know, <laughs> that's like, you know, I'm like thinking, what's going on here? You know, heroin, knives, guns, you know, all of the above. I don't know what it is. But uh, people were scared of them. And so, you know, coming through the country, you know, I did run into that uh, kind of holdover a little bit in certain sections of the country. Like the first time we played Philadelphia, open, opening for the Gang of Four, which was in August of 79, um, I was like watching the band and uh, this guy comes and slams into me full speed and knocks me flat on the ground. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, it's called the West Coast Chef. It's the newest dance. And so that was my first exposure to slam dancing. Oh, my gosh. An inauspicious start to the to the moshing. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you have to have a group of people to really make it work, you know, yeah. that are all real tied together. Otherwise, somebody's going to get hurt or knocked down or whatever, you know. I was kind of on the fringes, you know, when this guy just ran into me. And I think he was kind of surprised that I was upset. You know? yeah. Well, otherwise it's an assault. Yeah, it's not a dance at that point. It's just you're attacking someone. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, it's not fun at all. I didn't like it at all. Oh, what did the restraints sound like? Um, um, I, I think... You know, I'm just trying to remember. They were like, you know how there was kind of like that punk thing where it was kind of fast and it kind of had a 50, 50s kind of feel to it. Okay. Um, With the progression um, and a lot of shouting or whatever. But I don't really remember any of their songs specifically, but I know that I heard them. That We never played with them, but I know that I heard a uh, record by them. So that, that would be something for me to look up later on and See what I think now. Yeah, exactly. Um, you mentioned earlier the B-52s and them playing shows. And, uh, and from talking to Michael, he talked a lot about how a lot of those early shows were them kind of just playing in people's houses, like house shows. Um, and I was wondering, like, what was the first experience you had with seeing a band play in that kind of setting in like a house show environment? Oh, like at a house show setting. Well, um, it wasn't the B-52s. I'm not lucky in that regard because I, I saw them on their first club date. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really going to have to scratch my head and really think about it because uh, um, besides the B-52s, there weren't a whole lot of pal shows other than um, in art school when we got a single or a record from um, Chapter 3 Records, which was our favorite local record store at the time that got in all of the newest stuff, you know, like from New York and London and Germany and California and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, we would share them, you know, like we'd bring a six pack and some of our singles and records and we'd take turns playing our records and that kind of carried over to where we had, uh, you know, the students would get together and have house parties. Like probably the most famous one is our professor, Robert Croker, who had the 24-hour uh, party, which lasted 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and it really did. So, um, yeah, you know, and a lot of that was just spinning vinyl. There weren't a, 
band's playing, you know, per se at that point. Later on, uh, you know, when we started playing, we played a lot of house parties at first. And as new bands came on to the scene, uh, you know, like I saw OOK the first time they played in somebody's kitchen. You know, there were maybe 15, 20 people there. <laughs> and the basis that me and Michael just loved them. We asked them to come and open for us in New York. And I don't think that played. That was their first time playing. They were just so great. Um, you know, a lot of bands in Athens started out playing house parties and Pylon did too. So mm -hmm. like, it feels like that's like, you know, you know, and that's such a staple of punk rock, like the basement show, but you know, this has got to be one of the first kind of instances of these types of shows happening or, or the Athens scene. Well, um, I don't know. Uh, you know, surely it happens somewhere else. Uh, we couldn't have thought of that. Surely. Um, I mean, in a punk rock context, like obviously, you know, like going back to folk music, people have been playing in other people's living rooms and, you know, since the invention of music, I guess people have been playing in other people's dwellings, but, you know, like in a punk rock setting, it, it feels like these would have been some of the first sort of like DIY punk shows kind of born out of necessity. Cause you, from the sounds of it, you know, there weren't venues for you, for you to play. No, there really weren't any venues for us to play. You know, there were. Some venues, but, you know, like Last Resort, where the bees have played, you know, that tended to be more like a coffee house or have comedians or Sun Ra played there. Or, you know, Steve Martin came through there. <laughs> um, coffee house uh, lady who named Elizabeth, I saw her several times. She was barefoot, songstress with a acoustic guitar, um, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, as far as... Uh, um, you know, yeah, and most of the other venues, like the B&L Warehouse, uh, usually they would have band coming for a week, and it was probably a cover band like Choice who would play all of these uh, um, songs that the fraternities liked. And they had Archie Bell on the drills. He wrote some of the songs that the fraternities uh, like, you know, like Tighten Up. Um it's kind of a holdover from the North Carolina beach music scene. That was probably the original beach music scene, which predated the West Coast beach music scene. Really? And the dance that was popular, this kind of centered, you know, somewhere around Charleston and the South and North Carolina coast was a thing called the shag. And uh, you'll just have to look that up and yeah. see it. It's a simple dance that anybody can do. And, I mean, even to this day, there are people, uh, you know, and even younger people coming up, you know, in that area and certain circles, they still do the shag, you know? Mm -hmm. I had no idea. That's a, that's amazing. Like, it is, it's, it's funny because it is such a, you know, a musical hotbed, specifically Athens later on, right, where it becomes like, the center of the rock universe for, for a time. Well, sure. And, you know, going back, you know, we had music coming through here forever because it's a college town. Um, people were drawn to play, uh, you know, James Brown used to come here and play fraternity parties. <laughs> That's awesome. Little Richard too, Yeah. you know, so you look back in the fifties and sixties and then, you know, uh, they, there was a band called the Jesters who were very popular, who had about, 11, 12, 15 people in this band. They had saxophones and guitars and drums and 
you know, all that kind of business. And um, they played a lot of soul music. Soul music was very popular, R&B, um, you know, uh, just uh, just part of, you know, the background of uh, what made our state so great and uh, rich with music to start with. And then in the Appalachians, you know, we had the hillbilly and the bluegrass music and then the country music. So we've always had music here in Georgia. Um, you know, thinking back to my childhood, listening to my mom talk about growing up, it was not uncommon to have uh, country acts come through and play at the school or she saw the Carter family at her schoolhouse when she was a little girl come oh, wow. through and play, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it's uh, maybe punk is new, but uh, to like country music is old. You know, they were <laughs> out there playing on the back of flatbed truck at the local drive-in and all of that. So um, it's what? just uh, whatever you're you know, your knowledge of it is, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on that both me and you don't know about, but it might have influenced where we are, where our place is, you know? Oh, absolutely. But I think that's the thing is also like, you know, the influence that your bands had, you know, like that, that scene where all of a sudden this music was put on not just a national stage, but an international stage, like, you know, you, you toured Canada, like, you know, where I'm, where I'm sitting right now, you know, you toured England and now, you know, the, the records have gone all over the world since then. And, and not to undercut, like, obviously some of these artists definitely got international, but you know, it's amazing how your little scene went from, from like living rooms to, to stadiums in the case of some of the bands that came out of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I go, you know, I played Primavera last year with my band, Pylon Reenactment Society. And uh, we were one of two Georgia acts invited to perform. And we played one of the smaller venues. Um, it was like only, I guess, 2,000 people or whatever. But I was amazed. There were people from Italy, Germany, Iceland, you know, England who knew who we were and there were people who had moved from the United States to Spain and were living in Barcelona that came to see us specifically. Uh, so it was kind of a real eye-opener and then running into a couple of younger bands there who uh, really liked Pylon or they liked, uh, they knew the musicians who were in my band, you know, like uh, Jason E. Smith and Kay Stanton uh, played with their band Casper and the Cookies and so, uh, you know, there was just, I was like, kind of, wow, people in Spain know who Pylon are. It just kind of freaked me out. <laughs> I had no idea. And then we were written up and, you know, like a tag and online fanzine. And I had to get it translated. But, you know, there's Google Translate now. So yeah. I was like, wow. <laughs> no, it's, 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 well, because your band is so unique, you know, like, and your voice is so unique. And you just had, it, it's it's amazing the music's amazing so it, it stands the test of time and of course it it transcends language and borders yeah yeah i think they really get it um i tell you you know i was just really surprised that uh people remembered us much less wanted to still see us and then uh the band who played before us was a band uh you say you're from canada mm -hmm. um chandra Oh, now, yeah. most of her band is from Canada, 
and I really uh, love talking to them. And we have plans earlier this year. We were going to tour the southeastern United States, and I just finished booking it when COVID hit, so it was never even announced. So we hope to get to do that again someday. Well, yeah, no, I would, I you know, and hopefully make it up here again someday because I know. You did play here back in the day, though, right? Like on one of the early, early tours. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we toured there uh, with the Gang of Four. Um, I'm thinking that must have been, uh, hmm. Well, I've got uh, on the uh, Facebook page, I made uh, some notes about the dates where we played and with who. Um, I'm thinking that uh, maybe 80 we toured with the Gang of Four um, through the Midwest into Canada. And then um, we went back again on our own. And then when we played with uh, the B-52s, um, we opened for the B-52s. And uh, where is uh, Queens Road? Is that... Queen Street in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was... a uh, uh, That's where the place was it was some uh, big uh auditorium or uh, venue or what whatever we happened for them there and uh yeah so we've been to canada several times uh let's see we played uh uh where is the uh capital of uh ottawa ottawa yeah so we played ottawa and I, I was joking, we Ottawa, but we Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I made that one up. And <laughs> we, uh, is there Ottawa City or... Uh, Quebec City? Quebec City. Uh, no. But we played Montreal and Toronto and one other city there with the Gang of Four. And uh, we definitely played... Uh, Toronto with the B-52s, and uh, we also played uh, Toronto, you know, it was just on our own, but I think that was maybe one of our lowest attended gigs ever. There's some guy, you know, he keeps uh, contacting me from time to time. He says, do you remember? I was one of the two people there. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Thank you for being there. You and, never forget uh, <laughs> those gigs. Those ones are the ones that that stay with you for the rest of your life. Well, we didn't mind. I mean, we always, uh, we didn't care. It didn't matter how many people were there. I think also uh, one time we played Las Vegas, and uh, there was a fairly decent audience there. And the opening band were really new wave, like the opening uh, band's lead singer had on a giant, canary yellow jacket and you know he was like shining a spotlight on the crowd and then you know they were very popular and when they finished he said parties at our house and the whole audience except for two people left with him oh. and <laughs> i was like really okay, what a jerk right. oh my gosh <laughs> and so we were like well let's just have fun so we had fun and there were two people there that were two women, one was in a wheelchair and one was with, uh, lady was with her. And then after the show, we went out and of course to talk to them. And it turned out the lady had, uh, in the wheelchair 
had uh, broken her um, back and uh, had a spinal cord injury and had been at the Shepherd Spinal Center in Atlanta. And the nurses, because she was a young woman, would put it on the college radio stations for her, um, you know, while she was there laying on her back. Wow. And she became a pylon fan. And so uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, I, I forget why I didn't go. Maybe the wooden, you know, I just decided, you know, there's not enough room in this car. And I went back to the hotel. Uh, but the guys rode all over Las Vegas with her. She had a, a convertible, you know, with hand controls and everything. They had the best time. So we did that show for her. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing story to find out afterwards, too. It's like, wow, like what a... You know, the fact that you, you know, had a, had a role in this person's recovery, you know? Yeah, or at least, you know, kept her mind off yeah. everything for yeah. a few minutes, you know. But uh, she really liked us, so that was cool. So did you tour the West Coast? Did you fly out there and tour, or did you tour out from it, from Georgia? Well, when Palon uh, first toured the West Coast, uh, we went to California. I want to say it was early 1981. And our van, for some reason, ended up having problems with the, uh, um, you know, uh, you know how, the transmission, I guess. So you couldn't put it in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> and it did do all the speeds, you know, it was on the stick. So they had made up this like little thing that they said, I never drove the van, you know, um, just go ahead and say that. Um, they always made a point of uh, parking so that they could drive out instead of having to back out. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, if we had to stop for gas or go to the bathroom or whatever. And so uh, we made it all the way to California and uh, we got to Los Angeles uh, and it was right next to where their La Brea tar pits are because I know the van was broken down. And I saw a sign with an arrow on it that said La Brea Tar Pits. Yeah. <laughs> and we were broke down practically in front of a, um, like a um, garage. And, you know, I mean, how lucky is that? So uh, we're like thinking, well, how are we going to get around? We got out here. Um, so uh, one of them came back and said, oh, it's going to be two days at least before they can get it fixed. And so we said, I guess we need to go rent a car. So we looked across the road there, across like five or six lanes of traffic. And there's this big car rental place. It's in one of those round glass 60s looking buildings, you know, that has cars on displays. <laughs> and it's a big place. Uh, I forget what it's called. And so let's go over there and rent it. And we had cash with us. We saved up money to do this tour. And uh, we walked over there, and uh, um, there was a, a young woman. She had red hair and freckles, and uh, she was, like, at a desk. And we said, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, we need to rent a, um, a station wagon, a car, a van, or something. Our, our van is broken down. And she said, sure, I can set you up. And she started doing it, you know, all the paperwork. And then she goes, uh so, uh, which credit card are you going to put down? And uh, Michael and Randy looked at each other. You could just see their heart dropping into their feet. And they said, uh, we don't have a credit card, but we have cash. And she said, no, you can't, 
rent, you know, um, without putting something like that down on security. And uh, um, somebody said, gosh, we made it all the way here from Athens, Georgia, and now we can't even get around. And uh, she, she looked up and her ears just perked up and she said, Athens, Georgia. And uh, it turned out that she'd been in a Jewish sorority at the University of Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I'll fix this for you, okay? And I found out, you know, like, you know, we started talking to us and stuff. So uh, she got us all fixed up and we gave her cash and, you know, of course, got it right back to her and everything. So she didn't get in trouble with whoever she was working with. But that was so funny. It seems like almost everywhere we've went, we've run into, you know, people from Georgia or people that are really nice who've gone out of their way to help us. You know, I can't really, uh, you know, downplay that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really been a big factor in how we managed to uh, um, survive on the road, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny because like, you know, I talked once again to, to Michael about this, but, you know, you hear about Black Flag and DOA on the West Coast getting a lot of credit for being the bands that were kind of like setting up the network, uh, you know, on how bands tour. But that's kind of what you, you're, you know, yourselves are doing on the on the East Coast, you know, like in, you know, going from town to town, kind of building this sort of like, you know, relying on the kindness of strangers to get to the next gig type thing, but just kind of like building the network that, you know, bands like myself still use today, you know, like it's something that became kind of a part of being a DIY band. Oh yeah. And that's, it's still out there. I mean, you know, uh, uh, at a certain point we stopped sleeping on people's floors, but, uh, you know, you, you know, Michael had a Rolodex at one point that, uh, he would write down, you know, back then there were no cell phones, so he would write down all the contact information. He would write down the name of the sound person, the door person, um, something about them to jog our memories, a close place to get a good meal, um, where we would usually stay. I mean, heck, we usually stayed at the same room at the Iroquois in New York. We always asked for that same room, you know, and I think, uh, one of us accidentally kept a key, and um, that just got sent over to special collections for that exhibit, too. So, um, uh, you know, we, we like to be comfortable. I mean, we weren't, like, obnoxious or anything, but we like to sleep on a bed, and we like to have um, meals together and take care of each other. And um, we would always try to do something fun. It wasn't a, about, a, you know, for us, it was like... A, getting to take a trip and it was being paid for. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I mean, Michael, um, Jake's, it was like, uh, we, we started saying we were tourists in the land of rock and roll. <laughs> and in some ways that's true. Um, you know, it really is, you know, but I think that's like the best way to go through it, you know, cause then you're never become bitter and jaded towards it. Right. I mean, you know, it should be fun. I mean, why do it if it's not fun or, you know, um, I mean, you know, that's the question that came up, you know, when we were breaking up, uh, um, the guy who was booking us, uh, because we wouldn't go on this tour with you too, said, why are you doing this if you want to do things like this? And, uh, we, we were like, Hmm, why are we doing this? You know? 
<laughs> you know, that's a good question. Yeah. Thanks for asking it, dude. <laughs> but you guys, you did play some shows with you two, right? Yeah, we did two with them. Um, uh, I, our agent had booked these shows with uh, him, um, with them, without uh, consulting us, really. And uh, he thought we would be really excited, but uh, they weren't really our audience, you know, but we knew it. We knew that wasn't our audience, but they were very nice guys. I'll say that. Um, nothing about it. But, uh, you know, to keep from the booking agent having egg on his face, uh, we agreed to do two. So we did two instead of six. And I think that was a tryout to maybe do more. Um, somebody said that we'd even been offered their whole first U.S. tour. But, uh, you know, that wasn't what we were about, um, really. And uh, it wasn't that we were being spoiled brats or whatever. Uh, we just wanted to do things the way we wanted to do them. And uh, we'd much rather play a smaller club where people were there to see us, you know? Yeah. Well, that, that's why, you know, that's why to me you've always been a punk band is because you kind of did your own thing the whole way through, it seems. Yeah. And I think the do-it-yourself aspect, because we were very self-contained. We did our own graphics. We managed ourselves. uh all of that, you know, we wrote our own music, except for, you know, we did cover Batman and change the words. And I think early on, we might have, as a joke, done Wipeout. But uh, other than that, it was all our own material. Did you all put the stickers on the cover of the Crazy 7-inch? You know, that, like, reflective holographic No, I, I think, uh, you know, if I'd known that uh, Danny wanted us to, that uh, <laughs> I might have offered. But I didn't know... Um, but somebody did, and thank you, whoever you are, who did all of those. But yeah, we decided that um, we'd like the sticker. I think Randy found it at Stucky's, and and I'm I have one. I've donated it um, to that uh, museum thing. Um, it was uh, you know a pris prismatic sticker of a fish and Randy was really into some interesting things for the time he was kind of like a precursor maybe to the later hipsters but in his case it came out of a genuine kind of art artistic appreciation from uh, these kind of uh, cultural things that people might look over things that uh, you know, maybe in the 20s might have been considered ready-made art. And one of those was uh, stickers, uh, truck tr uh, stop type things, you know, uh, the mud flaps, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, He was into Japanese robots, uh, mid-century furniture. Um, you know, his dad was uh, a guy. He was a uh, um, person we'll see what do you call it, interior designer, but he was also an architect, so he would completely do over uh, the entire look and decoration of a house. This is way before, you know, flip or flop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he lived in the D.C. area. So through Randy, I learned, you know, you know, country girl that I am, I learned about things like Eames, furniture, and that type of thing, which are... Uh, you know, now more people are, are, of course, aware of, you know, the mid-century look. <clears throat> so I found out about those things through him. And uh, he, you know, he was like a, 
uh, high school. He had been like a skateboarder guy and he had uh, ridden dirt bikes until he hurt his knee. And his brother was like a fabulous skateboarder, Chris Bewley. Um, ended up, you know, winning some championships and whatever, you know, doing that. So uh, they were cool guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Going back to, you know, starting with Pylon, what what were some of your vocal influences that you were going in with? Well, there's a lot of people I like to listen to, but um, really I have to say Pylon is my influence because, look, this is how it happened. When I first went in, they were they already had some songs written, and they gave me the lyrics. And I looked at them and realized that these words don't exactly fit this music. So I had to make them fit, and I had to make them fit by, you know, extending words or, you know, making them shorter or finding some other rhythm for the word or whatever. So I'd have to say the guys with the music they were making influenced my vocals because, you know, the people I was listening to, I don't sound like them. I can't sing like that. All I can do, you know, is what I do. Mm-hmm. What about the the harsh vocal? And like, because you do have a scream at some point on, on the record. Was that like just once again, something that you felt fit the music? Or is there like people that had harsh vocals that you, you were listening to? Well, um, you know, that, I think that also kind of, came from the uh, sonic situation Uh, I couldn't hear myself (laughs) (laughs) so I was just trying to make myself heard and uh, you know it was something that kind of fit the uh, feeling of the music and the sound so yeah I do have a very uh, sharp and uh, a really loud kind of uh, sound there Uh, you know the first recording engineer we used Bruce Baxter he was just kind of shocked. He said, well, okay, I know we're doing good when you're in the red and uh, we're going to just keep you in the red. And I was like, I didn't know what he was talking about. And then later on touring with other bands, uh, um, the sound guys would go, yeah, that other guy can barely make that needle go up. You've always got it in the red. So <laughs> I was like, I think that comes from like what you're saying. That's, a punk rock situation where I was just uh, trying to make myself heard. And uh, it was the way that I knew how to do it with that, you know, to project. Well, I think your vocals are incredible. Like it's such a, like especially the, the yelling, the harsh vocal is such an influence on myself, you know? And I think, you know, you're once again, you're one of the early people doing it. Oh, cool. Well, you mean I'm the earliest Cookie Monster vocalist. <laughs> I would never saddle you with that. You are doing something far more nuanced than Cookie Monster vocal. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> well, that's very sweet. Thanks so much. Yeah, my. <laughs> what, what do you want to know? <laughs> no, I'm just gonna, I'm going going back to those early tours. Uh, who are some of the bands that would be opening for yourselves? Like, you know, obviously you're going on tour opening for Gang of Four, but I mean, like, locally when you'd be playing your own shows, like, what kind of bands were they fitting you in with? Well, it was uh, bands, you know, whoever uh, was locally, uh, um, you know, wanted to do it or the club found it or this band found out about it and they would ask to open for us. Uh, I think some bands... uh, um, 
like just mutual discovery would be like Mission of Burma from Boston. And uh, we played some very early shows together. And then we both ended up playing with the Gang of Four um, for this show that was actually, there was a party before it. that was a release party for Dry Ray. And that happened in Boston. Don't ask me why, <laughs> but that's how it was. And, uh, and so it happened in Boston. And uh, there's some people that were at that show that still claim that that is the best show that they ever saw. And these are people that go to show after show after show in Boston. And they say that show with the Gang of Four, Pylon, and Mission of Burma. So <clears throat> What a lineup. Holy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we blew the roof off that place, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also, it's funny because like n- none of you bands sound the same there, but yet, you know, you all kind of weirdly fit together. Like it makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah. We didn't sound like each other, but uh, maybe, uh, you know, and, and um, you know, Pylon's vocals and the lyrics, we, we weren't political, but uh, I think... Uh, um, there was something about the negative space that we left in the music. And also, uh, we were all just a bunch of nerdy people, you know, that were fun and, um, <clears throat> just like to hang out together. So it made perfect sense to me, you know, at the time. Uh, what are your memories of going to England for that, uh, brief tour that you did over there? Oh, okay. Well, um. Um, we were playing mostly with the band from over there called, uh, Medium Medium, um, who, uh, are considered a post-punk fan, you know, band, and, uh, we played with them, uh, probably most of that tour, except for a few shows, uh, they were very, very good, I think they had a, a compilation come out on Cherry Red a few years ago, and then when Pylon, Right before, uh, you know, Randy died, we played in Los Angeles at a con- uh, concert called uh, Part-Time Punks, which was put on by Michael Stock from KXLU. They let us have their equipment so we could play at that show. Uh, I think a certain ratio were the headliner, and then we were, like, below that. And, you know, they, at first they were trying to say, hey, we want you to be the headliner. And we're like, no, 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 you know, because uh, we didn't think anybody knew anything about us out there or would even care or anything. And, uh, you know, we came out there on the stage and uh, <clears throat> I had my head down. I was just trying to focus. And Randy hit the opening chord of some song. And this roar went up from the audience. I've never heard anything like that before. And I was like, they know the song. I can't believe it, you know. And because they were all so much younger than us. And um, that show was just total, totally great. Mm-hmm. Well, it shows the staying power, too, of the music, right? Like the fact that here we are all these years later, all these bands you've influenced later. And uh, it still impacts yeah, and I, well, and also I have to credit the DJs uh, who uh, would DJ at this particular club, the Echoplex in Los Angeles, because they'd been uh, playing our music um, for several years. As had James Murphy, um, mm-hmm. you know, not known to me at the time. You know, here I am. I'm I'm a registered nurse. I was a registered nurse for 21 years, and. Uh, 
I went out, but I'm kind of in my own domestic bubble. You know, I'm not like reading <laughs> trade magazines or, you know, reading DJ um, posts or anything. I don't know, you know, what people are doing. It was very eye-opening to me. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, I even, even when that DFA reissue came out, um, you know, a few years ago, I, even I, who was paying attention to everything that was going on at the time, was shocked. Like, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, you know, I never even would have thought, like, that Pylon would have had as much impact on someone like James Murphy as it did on myself. But I guess it shows that, like, you know, once again, it's a band that's so different that different people li listening to it are going to get, you know, different things out of it. Yeah. And we have very loyal fans who have followed us through this whole process you know it's just amazing you know who they would you would think they would have given up on us by now <laughs> <laughs> because you know we were bound for the dustbin of glory you know we really were um but uh we've been champions a few times you know like by rem and by athens georgia inside out and um then by you know bands like oh and the b52s and um you know, uh, these festivals and whatnot, and um, James Murphy and the DFA and now New West Records, you know, I just did not have a clue um, that it would be like this. But I did know that our product was not available. And so, you know, it's been, you know, probably nine or 10 years ago, I started thinking we need to look at vinyl reissues and, uh, I've been working to get our uh, rights back to our music and uh, publishing together. I had some really good friends along the way, uh, like Philip Walden Jr., his uh, dad owned Capricorn Records, but he was an entertainment lawyer, and he was a, um, a Pylon fan. He helped me get the uh, publishing companies uh, for Pylon done, and get our rights back to our music and uh, set up an LLC, you know, all the unglamorous things, you know, that nobody really is interested in. But you know what? If, if uh, you don't take care of your business, there's always somebody who's going to be willing to do that. So younger bands, listen up, take care of your business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Well, and it's also, it's so awesome that it's coming out as a box set, you know, cause it's just like, I like, you know, here I, I have, I have all the originals, but I'm going to get the box set because there's other stuff to get. And there's a book and it just feels like so epic. Yeah. It was that, that book too. Uh, the label, uh, um, Brady, uh, Brock, who is the, uh, vice president of publicity there, but he championed for us to get signed there and he's the executive producer, he was insisting that we do a book. And at first, Michael wasn't envisioning something on the scale. But Michael and Curtis and I have been talking about donating our ephemera uh, to UGA for years. And uh, it just kind of seemed overwhelming. But this made us go through that stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, it got some of it got photographed, I mean. Actually, New West were kind of uh, freaked out. Well, not freaked out it's not the right word. Well, they were surprised that we had kept so much stuff. <laughs> we had a lot of stuff, and Michael and I weren't even the uh, um, 
you know, uh, what do you call it? The archivist for the band. Randy was that, but he had passed away and his stuff, uh, you know, his family has, and they haven't had a chance to go through all of it. Although they gave us quite a bit of stuff, um, you know, to look at, but, uh, you know, that book, that process of that. And then he said, um, you need to have a uh, history in here. And he hired a writer who talked to us and, um, um, it was the same one who did the uh, history and the glands box set to kind of give an overview to people that don't know anything about pylon, you know, like, you know, yourself or people who've been following us a long time. So that's like, well, okay, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll do it. We'll get the story straight because uh, sometimes it's kind of been embroidered on or things have been left out. So it was kind of fun to, tell the whole story yeah well it's just and it's it's also you know it helps to kind of have that story put together and laid out for people because you know the fact that here's a band that you know was championed by the b52s influenced rem influenced uh lcd sound system influenced all these punk bands as well and, and dance punk bands and new wave bands and punk you know like it's just it's a lot to take in so you kind of need someone to put it down into text form yeah, like where, yeah, where we came from, our our humble beginnings, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's building a scene, you know, and it's still it's it's you know it's so awesome, like you know, to see how you know the music that you played and the scene you were a part of changed that city, you know, like Athens, you know, was it is is a different place because of your bands than it was before your bands. Yeah, yeah. I you know, I hopefully in a good way. Right now, a lot of these uh, venues are struggling, of course, because mm. they they're shut down. They're doing the right thing. I hope they come back. You know, I really do. Yeah. It'd be a shame to see some of those go down. Some of them have already gone down, uh, which I played recently. You know, throughout the southeast with the uh, um, Pylon Reenactment Society, I was like. Gosh, that's such a shame because that was such a nice club, you know. Those people were so mm. nice. So it's yeah. heartbreaking. You know, it definitely is, and I think, you know, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, it all, as you say, comes back because uh, it was something that was built, you know, by people and bands over these years that still provides an outlet for people and still provides an infrastructure for for young bands to play because there are venues now that, that cater to younger music and will kind of like give new artists a chance. Yeah. Yeah. The give them, you know, to have the, the, the young people on the scene, that's always been important to me to see that happening. Um, because, uh, Athens, you know, like a lot of towns, it's like a lab, you know, really where you can, pretty much do anything you want to do, you know, within, you know, legalities or whatever on stage. And, yeah. you know, people will watch you, you know, saw a box on stage and, uh, you know, beat at it with a hammer and they'll like smile and go, oh yeah, I remember being young, you know, um, or they'll <laughs> think it's really exciting because they've never seen it before. But, uh, you know, they got to, um, they got to have that, that place, that creativity, but uh, it's just uh, it just upsets me in a lot of ways that is uh, um, 
not really supported by the government here. Hopefully it will be, you know. Yeah, because these are like, you know, these, you know, these bands change communities, you know, they're, they're, they're important. These artists change communities and like, yeah, I think Athens is a, is a perfect example about why arts needs to be supported. Yeah. Yeah. The, the arts, definitely all the arts, they're important and not everybody sees that. They only see the monetary, you know, um, aspect of something, but, uh, you know, kids that play music, they might not do that forever, but it changes their brains, the way they look at things. I think it makes them smarter. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, I know. I 100% agree, I think. Um, I guess, like, you know, this has been a, an amazing conversation. If you ever want to come back here, you know, the door is always open because I would love to talk to you more. <laughs> well, that would be awesome. Well, I'd like that. You're you're a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, I hope you can edit this down into something you can use. Oh no, this is per what are you talking about? This is an all gold. There's no the only thing I'm going to edit together is the parts where we got disconnected. I think everything else is perfect. This is, but uh, before I let you go, I just kind of wanted to to talk to you, you know, about what were some of the artists that were happening back then that you saw that you kind of felt, you know, didn't kind of get uh, canonized in the same way or haven't been sort of looked upon, you know, as favorably as time has gone on. Like, were, were there any artists that you kind of think have been forgotten about that, that were important to you that you saw? Oh gosh, I wish you'd give me some time to think about this, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I know there are some because I've forgotten them. Okay. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know i'll have to come back and talk to you about that i've got to give that some thought because we've had so many good bands in this town you know at the peak we had 350 wow that's incredible it's it's amazing when you go through like a uh you know like db rex discography or something and you just look at all these artists or like you know buzz of delight which you know went on to become matthew sweet or like it's just amazing how much stuff what you're saying but like that number is shocking even to me <laughs> oh yeah it's a it's a lot there have been a lot over time besides that you know so many great you know artists and musicians in this town so many this uh um it's humbling mm -hmm. you know it really is <laughs> Thank you, Vanessa, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Vanessa will be back for a part two whenever she feels like. Whenever she's like, I want to go back on there and, and talk more about the punk rock, she is more than welcome to come here anytime, anytime. And pick up that uh, pick up that uh, pylon box set that's come out, once again, designed by Chunklet's very own Henry Owings, an incredible graphic designer. And it's got an incredible book, and the music's amazing, and the ephemera in there. Uh, Oh, I can't wait to get my hands on one. I'm very excited about picking this thing up. Uh, speaking about things I'm excited for, next week on the show, I am beside myself excited for the fact that finally, one of the greatest to ever do it, the legend, a buddy of mine, a guy that I've known for years, someone who has actually been on the show one other time, but it was in a group episode, so you really didn't get to, to focus on this story. And trust me, it was worth the wait. Next week on the show, Uncle Keith Morris will be joining me. That's what we call him around my house, and I'm not, I'm not just making that up. We actually do call him Uncle Keith uh, because the, the kids, the kids love him. The kids love him anyway. So Keith is here on the show, and it is a doozy. 
it is a doozy. You know, uh, the Circle Jerks have just had their godly classic group sex reissued, and Keith is coming by the show to celebrate. And it is a good time. It is a good time catching up with Keith. Oh, I'm stoked for you to hear it. So that is it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. Protect trans kids. Protect trans people. Uh, Right now, uh, as we all know, we see it every day. It is a tumultuous time in our world. But we got to stand up. We got to say fuck you to all the Nazis, all the fascists, all the all all these people that are just spreading hate, you know, and that can be in the form of showing up. Uh, that can be in the form of donating money to causes that confront these people and deal with issues around systematic oppression. Uh, it could also be, you know, uh, just, just getting yourself informed, you know, talking to the people around you that might not be informed and, and trying to, you know, express what's happening right now in this world. Anyway, go out there and, and get involved because you'll look back on this time and you'll be like, I should have said something. I should have done something. Um, and, and yeah, that's it. Uh, go out there and sign your organ donor cards. Uh, I know, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a pain you to worry about death and stuff, but by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. So you're really just like saying, you know what? You just, just, just take some of the, this, the stuff away from me. I don't need it anymore. Just give it to someone else, you know? So there you go. Uh, go out there and make your own culture though, because before you die, you want to have uh, yourself express the world in some way. And that can be, you know, painting a picture, drawing, writing, just just do something to kind of exercise those creative muscles. You don't have to show the rest of the place, you know, the rest of the world about this, the stuff that you're making, you know, just just for yourself. Just go out there and, and make your own culture and maybe share it with the world. But maybe not. Maybe it's just for you. You know, who knows? Who knows? Uh, and wear a mask. Wear a mask, please for you know all of us we can you know one day we'll be going to shows again and making more memories and and be able to you know continue this podcast forever because punk rock will continue forever if we all just get through this so all right that's it i love you i will see you on the next episode with uncle keith morris bye nice buns soft fluffy and ultra low net carbs discover hero bread the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture hero bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving plus high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving order from hero.co now and get 10 percent off your first purchase with promo code ah10 that's 10 percent off with code ah10 h-e-r-o dot c-o Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.